0: Hi everyone, my name is Ryan Stacey and welcome to the Hockey Minds Podcast. This podcast is powered by Instat, the leader in video and data analysis. Instat Hockey supports all levels of our game worldwide with video breakdowns and or scouting services. For more information, visit Instat on the web at instatsport.com or on Twitter at Instat Hockey. Today I'm joined by Mike Johnson, Vice President, Head Coach, and General Manager with the Portland Winterhawks. Needing no introduction, Mike has a wealth of experience in the game, having coached teams such as the Vancouver Canucks, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Team Canada, and having players such as Anze Kopitar, Sidney Crosby, and the great Wayne Gretzky in his list of former players. Being able to talk about each and every role was a lot of fun on my part, and with lots of detail throughout, listeners will be able to learn what it takes to make it to the top level and what you can expect to see once you're there. This was one of my favorite interviews to date, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So, without further ado, here is Mike Johnson, Vice President, Head Coach, and General Manager with the Portland Winter Hawks. Today, I'm joined by Mike Johnson, Vice President, Head Coach, and General Manager of the Portland Winter Hawks. Mike, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, you know, you have a wealth of experience that people are very interested in. So let's dive right into your career and maybe just start off by telling us about yourself, including where you grew up, and then speak to your involvement in sports throughout your youth.
1: Well, I grew up close to where you are. I grew up in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And at that time in in Nova Scotia, there weren't a lot of hockey players leaving the province to go play. A few players were going to the Quebec League or the Ontario League. Uh prior to me, you had Al McGuinness. Or you had a guy like Rick Bonus, who's getting a lot of notoriety right now, leave. But there weren't many in in the province, and there was no Quebec major junior hockey in in Dartmouth at that time or Halifax. So most of the players played high school hockey, junior B hockey. And then I played my first university game when I was 18 years old at Acadia University. So I went right to school after high school, the University of Acadia, and uh, made the hockey team, fortunately. Uh, played there for three years and then uh, for the first time I I left Nova Scotia and went to Brandon University and that sort of allowed me to get some inroads into the west Uh, played for an NHL coach there who was just starting out Andy Murray and he asked me to come out to Brandon finish my degree so I went up there and and played for Brandon uh, was her captain in my final year and then that led to a coaching job at a young age.
0: Yeah it's great to hear those early experiences and uh, your playing career is one that I knew about, and having that involvement definitely led into a hockey operations role later on. So you talked about coaching. Uh, just walk us through one of those early experiences, uh, that being Camrose Lutheran College, and you know what you learned in that initial position.
1: Well, I think a lot of times uh, when I'm talking to young coaches, they're always saying, how do I get into the game? And and I was lucky, I guess, in how I got in, because I, I graduated from school, I was going to be a teacher, I was going to be a phys ed teacher. Uh, There were no teaching jobs in Manitoba when I graduated from Brandon, um, and and it was really challenging to find a job anywhere. Um, Dave King had coached the University of Saskatchewan, and he phoned Andy Murray one day and said to Andy, "Uh, do you have any ex-players that have graduated, Uh, Camrose Lutheran College is looking to hire a young coach that can live in residence, uh, has the ability to teach, and then can coach uh, their hockey team? and uh, so Andy passed my name on and um, I got an interview at Camrose and fortunately enough I got the job not because of any coaching experience because I had none but simply because I could live in residence and I could teach and they took a flyer on me and allowed me at 23 years of age uh, to coach their college hockey team which was a two-year college uh, leading into the University of Alberta and so I was Coaching a lot of players that were very similar age to myself, and I was trying to learn how to coach on the fly.
0: Yeah, I think those positions where you're kind of just thrown into something and uh, you learn a lot through those experiences. And that sounds like a very unique time to uh, get your name in there. You know, you never had any coaching experience, but because of the teaching background and the ability to live on residence and things like that, you were, you know, the ideal candidate almost to kind of go in there and learn and learn you did. So, you know, as you progressed, you would go on to work in a few more positions. Uh, a couple of early ones were at the university level. Just talk about those roles and what you learned with the University of New Brunswick and the University of Calgary, respectfully.
1: Well, I uh, when I was at Camrose, my goal was to get a university job and, and be a full-time uh, Canadian university coach. In order to do, to do that at that time, you had to have your master's degree. So in Alberta, and prior to that, when I was Learning how to coach. Uh, I'll tell a short story, which I've told before, about my first day on the job in Camrose. I was told, "You better go in and order some equipment. We need equipment for the team because the you're hired in July and the season's starting in September. So you better get into Edmonton to United Cycle and order your equipment for the year." So that's the first thing I did when I was on the job. I drove into Edmonton to United Cycle and asked for the manager. And a guy came out of the back room. Ken Hitchcock. He was a manager of United Cycle. He was coaching midget hockey in uh, Sherwood Park, Alberta. And so I got to know Ken Hitchcock. He introduced me to Claire Drake, the late Claire Drake at the University of Alberta. Um, George Kingston was at Calgary. So while I was in Alberta, I had some great mentors, guys who could guide me along and and help me with with the thousand questions that I had. But in the back of my mind, as I mentioned, I always wanted to be a university coach. So I knew I needed to get my master's degree. So George Kingston indicated to me that in the Olympic year in 88, that uh, they were going to start a master's degree in coaching science at the University of Calgary. So I enrolled in the program, I went to the University of Calgary, worked with George Kingston and Willie Desjardins. Uh, the three of us coached together for two years. And then I was hired by the University of New Brunswick immediately after I got my master's degree and had the experience at the University of Calgary. So I did get to where I wanted to go, and, and it seems like in coaching, I was never in a rush to get anywhere, but I had an idea of where I wanted to get to next. And the University of New Brunswick was a great experience coming back home to the Maritimes. Uh, for me, uh, being the coach of a program which was had been struggling for three or four years, um, and I thought a great campus, great environment, a lot of Newfoundlanders come over, I uh, had to go to school there. I know some of them were great teammates uh, or great players for us uh, at the University of New Brunswick. And so I had a chance to really script my own program there because it, I think they, the year before they had won two games and the year before that three games. So they were really on, on the bottom at that time. So I just took a look at the whole program and tried to overhaul it.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And I think those experiences, you know, you have a team that is maybe underperforming or they're looking for something new, it's a great opportunity then for you to go in and and really put your mark on a program and do it your way and, and test things out. Maybe that um, in a more established or at the time successful program, you wouldn't have that opportunity. So uh, things like that play a role and, and further your abilities as you progress. So before we move into your NHL and WHL experiences, I wanted to look at your roles with hockey Canada. Uh, there are a few. So how about you just start with your roles at the World Junior level and you know U seventeen, U eighteen events, and just talk about those initial experiences.
1: Well, that was another goal of mine when I first started coaching. I wanted to get involved in the uh, development programs provincially, and then I always aspired. When I watched World Junior on TV at Christmas time, I thought, boy, it'd be great if I could coach at the World Junior level. A lot of the coaches at that time came from junior hockey, and they still do. But I was a college coach, and I still wanted to get into the program. So what I did, Ryan was I first uh, got involved with the Alberta under 17, under 16, and I coached a team one year with Tom Rennie, who's who's uh, the, uh, runs Hockey Canada and has coached in the NHL for a long time. So Tom and I coached an under 17 team for Alberta, British Columbia, and uh, in the World Under 17 Challenge it was called at that time, and and. That was my first experience coaching on a higher level with elite athletes. Then, when I was at the University of New Brunswick, Dave King asked me if I would coach uh, a Spanger Cup team for him. So I did that, and it was at Christmas. Spanger Cup, one of the greatest tournaments that you can ever go to because it's in Davos, Switzerland, in the Alps. At Christmas time, you assemble a bunch of Canadian players that are playing in Europe and you try and win a very difficult tournament that's been around since the 1920s. So I coached that, and that, that led into an opportunity to interview for the, for the World Junior Team. And so then I was fortunate enough to get hired by the World Junior Team. Joe Canelli was a head coach in the Quebec League, and Danny Flynn uh, from Nova Scotia. And Danny and I grew up together, actually, and so we got to coach together in the World Junior Team. Danny was in the Sioux coaching with Ted Nolan at the time. So we coached, uh, we won in the Czech Republic. And then the next year, uh, Don Hay and I coached the World Junior in Alberta. So we got, I I was able to stay with the World Junior team for two years. And then that led into a job um, after the University of New Brunswick, Tom Rennie asked me if I wanted to come to Hockey Canada, work with him and prepare for the Olympics. So I thought that would be a neat experience to travel the world and coach. And that's when Team Canada was a full-time team and you were traveling the world, playing games in Canada, playing games in Europe. And then you were preparing for the Olympic games in 98. But as would happen that the Olympic games never took place in 98 for uh, amateur players. That's the first NHL team. And I was able to go to that.
0: Yeah, that's uh that's a, an incredible experience. And we'll kind of transition into that. Um, you know, it's really your, first opportunity to work with the NHL caliber players. So just talk about that Olympic experience and and maybe how it prepared you to take that next step into the NHL.
1: While I was coaching with Hockey Canada, the, the big event for us at the end of every year was the world championships. So we would gather NHL players for the five years I was with Hockey Canada. So I had three weeks every year with NHL players So I had known a few of those guys over the years. And then to get an opportunity with Mark Crawford, Andy Murray, Wayne Cashman to coach in the Olympics. You know, for anybody going to Olympics, representing your country is such a special experience. I never thought that would happen. Um, And I never thought it would happen with the very first event for NHL players. So we had an incredible team. Uh, We lost one game in a shootout. Uh, to the Czech Republic, and that put us in the bronze medal game. So we had a clean tournament. We had a great tournament. I thought we played outstanding all the way through. And then in the crossover game, we played the Czech Republic, and Hasek uh, stoned us, and we lost in a shootout. And then we went on and played Finland in the bronze medal game. It was a, It was an amazing experience. It was great to coach the best in the world. And then that led, as some of my jobs have led from one to the other, Mark Crawford after the Olympics was hired by the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, the next year he asked me if I wanted to come into Vancouver and start coaching in the NHL.
0: Yeah, those connections and experiences are always lead into something else and there's ties to every role almost in someone's career. But uh, very interesting to hear about the Olympic experience, especially it being, you know, ninety eight. A lot of people know the magnitude of that event with the NHL finally coming in and a player like Dominic Hashik, you know, an outstanding goaltender and uh you know, on the international stage, it's an amazing experience to be able to say you played against him. And um, if there is a goalie to lose to in a close game, I think Hashik is the one that you can almost tip your hat and say, you know, that this is okay. This is one to lose. But Yeah, he you know, had a pretty
1: good goaltender in Patrick yeah. Bob too. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, he wasn't going to let much in. It was a 1-1 game. He yeah. wasn't to much in either. It was uh, a shot off the post that kind of beat him. But, uh, yeah, it, it was a, it was a good experience. And it was – Kind of Gretzky's last big event, and uh, at the time we weren't sure if if Wayne could play a, a top role at that event. Uh, we were deb- everybody was debating all year. We knew he was still a, a very good player, but we weren't sure if he'd be a top line player. So we brought him in, and we were expecting he'd play a, maybe a little bit lesser role. But as the event went along, he just took over uh, both on and off the ice for our team. He was he was incredible and. When I look back at that team, there's probably of the 22 players, there may be 15 uh, Hall of Famers in that group. It's really, really quite an incredible group, and it was an amazing experience. Even though it was a, a short-term event, we still had opportunities during the year to get together with the team. And then that, I think those experiences, uh, working in World Championships when I was with Hockey Canada, working in the Olympics, probably gave me – as a, as a kind of a younger rookie coach at that level gave me enough confidence that when I went to Vancouver, I felt very comfortable with the team.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and confidence building is so key early on. So moving into Vancouver now, you're there as an assistant coach. Uh, talk about your initial feeling moving to the NHL and then what you learned during your time in Vancouver, working with players like, you know, Sabine Twins and Marcus Naslin and, and all these guys during that time.
1: Well, first the people I work with up top, uh, Brian Burke was a GM. Uh, Brian was fabulous as a general manager. You, you couldn't work for a better person. I know his persona on TV is, is this gruff, hard guy, but, uh, my wife will tell you that she was his, the favorite, uh, GM she we've ever had. And, and he treated the staff, he treated the families really well. Um, real caring guy. So it was great to work for him. And and I look at who was with him. Uh, you, you, we had Dave Nonis, who went on to become a good general manager and is in Anaheim as an assistant now. Steve Tambellini, who went on to be a GM in the league. So again, I was really fortunate to have some good people to work with, uh, good mentors while I was there as a coach. Um, and then the late Jack McElhargy who was coaching with Mark Crawford and myself. And we stayed together For seven years, so when I went there, I remember saying to my my kids were really young, and I told them we're moving to Vancouver, and they said, "Oh, that's great! We you know we can go to school." I said, "We have to remember this is the NHL. Things change fast, and and from what I understand, most coaches last two or three years in the NHL. Uh, I just hope to stay. And um, our first year we struggled, and then that was the last year. After that, we just took off." And we had good teams. And you mentioned the Sedine Twins. My first day on the job with the Vancouver Canucks, uh, we went to the draft in Boston. So I had just been hired that week. And Brian Burke invited the coaching staff down to Boston for the, for the event. And I sat in the room uh, with the meetings. And I remember the, the night before, everybody was talking about the Sedine Twins. And Brian was going to try and construct a trade to get both of them. And I didn't know either player, I saw some video clips. I heard the talk about them. And then Brian pulled off the big trade uh, on, on draft day, was able to pick Daniel and Henrik, and they became the cornerstone of our team. But we also had uh, Marcus Nazan as our captain. Todd Bertuzzi was just starting to take off. Brendan Morrison, and we had just traded for Brendan Morrison. We had Jovanowski, Olin, Salo, Kluche. We had a good team, but we were just beginning to start to climb, and then we had several years. I think we won the division once or twice when I was there. We had one lockout year uh, when I was there as well, but it was a fabulous experience, great hockey city, passionate fans, and a really good group of guys to work with.
0: Yeah, it's it's great to hear that. It was a positive experience overall. Uh, I've been to Vancouver and, and watched the Canucks play, and it, it really is a great city for hockey, and uh, amazing atmosphere and you know the west coast express and, and those players yeah. during that time it's uh it's incredible to you know be able to say you interacted with them on a daily basis you know eventually uh you would move on to an- another team that being la uh and, and as an associate coach with the kings uh talk about the change and how was the role different in la compared to your time in vancouver well it,
1: it wasn't much different uh so um they let uh, Mark Crawford go. I interviewed for the job in Vancouver, didn't get the coaching job at that time. Alain Vigneault got the job. And then uh, Mark was uh, offered the position right away in Los Angeles with the Kings. And Dean Lombardi had just arrived there. And at that time, I was looking at another position with Toronto. And Toronto was kind of my team growing up and I had an opportunity to go there. And work as an assistant coach. But I decided that I thought it would be a neat experience to go to the U.S. and coach and live in L.A. I thought it would just be a great family experience. And so I went with Mark uh, down to L.A. and we coached in L.A. And when I was in Vancouver, as we talked about, I was fortunate enough to be with the Sedins. Two amazing uh, players, but high-end quality character people and saw them grow over the years and work with them. Originally, they were second line guys for us behind Naz and Bertuzzi Morrison, and then second line power play guys because I ran the power play. And then they started to bump up and bump up over the years. And then they were just starting to hit their stride. Going to LA, I had almost a similar experience because Anze Kopitar had been drafted, came over from Slovenia, and he was 19 years of age uh, at, our first, at his first camp, and he was so impressive, we decided to keep him. So we kept him that year, and he was outstanding. Uh, in practice, uh, in games, uh, how he adjusted, adapted to everything. I, I, thought, I still believe that is really undervalued. Because of where he plays, he doesn't get the notoriety of a lot of players but he is a big, strong 200 foot center that can do anything for you. And I just couldn't believe in my young coaching experience at the NHL level that I had that, those quality of players to work with, especially young guys. And so in LA, we struggled a little bit, but we had guys coming like Dustin Brown was just starting to come and Froloff, Vishnovsky, Rob Blake could come back to LA to, to play. So I had another, another opportunity besides the Olympics and World Championships to work with Rob Blake. So, and living in LA, a lot of people look at, the first thing you would say probably is, well, how did you handle the traffic? But a lot of people don't understand that in Los Angeles, the team lives in Manhattan Beach or Hermosa Beach. So right by the airport. So you have El Segundo, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa. So you're about 10, 15 minutes from the airport. The practice facility, we shared it with the Lakers, is right there. So I had to go two miles to the rink, four miles to the airport, and then on game days, we would carpool down to the Staples Center. And that's all we ever traveled in traffic. We never went anywhere in traffic. My family, they played all their sports in Manhattan Beach. We lived in Manhattan Beach, went to school there it was the easiest transition of anywhere we went and it was a phenomenal family experience and really for me uh to coach in LA and and be involved with the LA sports scene I thought it was uh it was it was great
0: yeah no it's uh it's definitely a question I was going to ask you know it's a very different atmosphere in LA big city and you have the different sports teams the Lakers and things like that but um great to hear again another positive experience and you are definitely very fortunate with the Sedins then to move in with Anze Kopitar and Rob Blake, as, as you worked with before. So um, very fortunate to work with those players. And, you know, that trend kind of continued. Uh, your next stop was head coach with the Pittsburgh Penguins. And you were able to work with uh, some pretty well-known players there. Just, you know, how did you land in Pittsburgh? And how was that experience with the Penguins?
1: Well, after the LA, um, so again, uh, there was a, a Dean Lombardi made a coaching change. I interviewed for the job. Uh, In L.A., I interviewed for probably, it was a period of six to eight weeks before they made their decision. I didn't get the coaching job in in L.A. It was about um, later July, I think, and I got a call from um, uh, Dave King who said that uh, there was a friend he knew who was going to um, potentially buy a major junior team and was wondering if I had any interest in being the, the GM coach of that team i never coached at the junior level. So the stop before Pittsburgh was was Portland. And so it was about later August when I decided that if if Bill Gallagher bought the team in Portland, then I would go in. And at that time, I was living in LA and I was looking for an assistant coach and Travis Green had just retired. So I went and met with Travis in Anaheim and I asked him if he wanted to coach. I said I might have an opportunity, and he said he said he would love to get into coaching. That's what he wanted to do when he finished his career. And so uh, Travis and I were prepared, and then the team, the, the final purchase of the team didn't go through until late October, so the season had already started in the Western League. and We took over the team on October 31st, and that's when I started uh, my coaching career in Portland, which led to Pittsburgh and then back to Portland.
0: Yeah, no, it, it sounds outstanding and uh, maybe we can push the Pittsburgh opportunity a little bit back and just continue to talk about the Winter Hawks, maybe up until, uh, you know, today. Uh, just talk about, you know, why you've learned in junior level, uh, the success the team has had and the opportunity to work w- with some more outstanding players uh, through that team.
1: Well, it's really interesting, the junior level, because I'd never coached there before. As we talked about, my first coaching job was, was Camrose Lutheran College and then the University of Brunswick, so players generally between the age of 19 and 24. And then I went on to Team Canada, so you've got adult players. And then NHL, wide range of players. So I'd never coached players 16 to 20 in that age slot before. And I thought this would be a neat experience because at the NHL level, I saw a lot of players come from junior hockey. And I remember talking to the coaching staff saying, boy, that guy looks like he came from a really good program. He understood the game his training, his nutrition, his presence. And then I could see other players and say, wow, they didn't come from a very good program. They didn't do a good job with these guys. So I wanted to be, I wanted to create a program with Travis that could produce NHL players and give kids an opportunity to play in the NHL, get games in the NHL, maybe have a career in the NHL. So we took a look at Portland and once again, it seems like in my career anyway, maybe that's why jobs were available. When I came into Camrose, the team was at a low level, University of New Brunswick. I came into Vancouver, it was at a low level, LA. So it seems like most of the teams, and that's why there was a transition. When you come in, the team's struggling. That's why coaching change was made and personnel change was made. So now you have a chance to really put your imprint on an organization. So what Travis and I did that year, the team was 2-17 when we took over the team. They had two wins in their first 19 games. So we knew we didn't really have much of a chance that year. So what we said was, we're not going to make any trades. We're not going to disrupt anything. We're going to evaluate the people we have. We're going to assemble a good scouting staff. And we're going to take care of the whole environment around the players so that we can recruit. So we can go into homes next year. We can convince parents to send their sons to Portland and, and know that we have great medical care. We have a good schooling program, best in the league. Everybody goes to school every day. We, have, we check out our bill at homes, make sure we have comfortable homes, good care for the, for the player. And then our training environment. We set up, we, we get a strength and conditioning coach. We set up our training environment. So what we did, Ryan, was we took care of everything around the team. Uh, We weren't worried about wins and losses. Uh, We were worried about all those factors that could help us become a good team in the long term, not in the short run. And that's what we did. And I think the next year we went from, uh, at the end of the year, we had 19 wins, and then we went to 42 or 43 the next year. And we were able to recruit some good players that Ken Hodge had drafted previously. So he had drafted some pretty good players. He had set the table for us. There were some good players there. We just had to recruit them and get them to Portland, Uh, like Brian Johansson. And then we got Ryder. We had Brad Ross, um, a Pouliot, Joe Morrill. So we had some players there that had been drafted, and we just had to get them into our system and then start to work with them.
0: Yeah, no, a number of guys that a lot of hockey fans will understand the names and and remember those uh, junior moments with them. But it's great to hear once again you had that opportunity to come into a program and, and try new things. And uh, you did it the right way in making sure that the environment around the, the team and the players, you know, the medical, the billet families, the schooling, those things that not a lot of people think about initially when they're thinking of a hockey team and the on ice product. You really have to uh, make sure the environment around them is right for the players to be successful. So,
1: and the other thing we tried to do is change the mindset of the players. We wanted the players to believe if they came to Portland, they had a chance to be a pro. So we had to create a very serious, um, demanding environment. And long-term, and I learned this lesson from Claire Drake years before. Uh, I asked Claire Drake, I said, how do the University of Alberta, every single year they have championship teams? And when I watch the teams, you graduate players, players move on, but they all look the same. I look at your teams every year. I watch them on the ice and they all look identical. How does that happen? And he says, remember this one thing, it's called role modeling. What you do when you get young players is you make sure they understand how you want things to be done on the ice, off the ice, take care of the dressing room, uh, good behavior when we're in restaurants, everything that you want them to do. And then when they become your veteran players, they will teach your, those young guys how to do it. And you don't have to do anything anymore. The veterans will teach them. And so recognizing that and remembering that lesson in Portland, that's what we did. We changed the mindset of players so that when our young guys became veterans in three or four years, they dictated how things were, how hard we were gonna practice and the expectations, uh, how we uh, treated people when we were in hotels and restaurants, how we cleaned up in the dressing room after ourselves. So those little things, we wanted to make sure that we had that role modeling concept uh, available to us after two or three years, and that made my job, Travis's job, a lot easier around the team. And, the, and we, the players, started to push the players uh, because they wanted to be a pro. So, if the guy beside him was was not carrying the load, they would get on him because it was going to affect their career.
0: Yeah, no, it, that's a, a very good point to make. And we see the top teams, whether it be a junior even minor hockey programs, it's just that constant mentoring and and role modeling, as you touched on, to uh, allow those players to succeed over a long period of time. And um, Now, in, in that time in Portland, moving back into Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh is one of those teams that uh, for the last number of years have seemed to be uh, fairly successful with moving players in and out. Um, so you were able to take everything you learned uh, in junior and through your other NHL experiences and apply it in Pittsburgh. Uh, talk about that, Thomas head coach, and uh, maybe some new things that you learned uh, with more added responsibility.
1: Well, I really enjoyed my time in Portland, and I wasn't re- looking for an opportunity to get back to the NHL. I had a, two serious offers to go as an assistant coach, but I felt in Portland that I could have a big impact on, on young players because I was a general manager, so I chose the players, signed the players, and then Travis and I had them in Portland, we could develop them. So the opportunity came along where I got a call from Jim Rutherford. And actually prior to that, about three weeks before, I went in and interviewed uh, with Trevor Linden and Jim Benning in Vancouver. So Vancouver was looking for a coach. Pittsburgh was looking for a coach. So I interviewed in Vancouver. I had known Trevor. I coached Trevor as a player, Uh, Jim Benning. Uh, The new GM there was a former Portland Winterhawks. I'd known him just by the association in Portland. And then I got a call from Jim Rutherford and asked me if I would come in and interview for Pittsburgh. And so what happens at the NHL level, a lot of times when you get coaching opportunities, generally if you're getting an assistant or associate coaching position, you have some link to the head coach, uh, like I had with Mark Crawford. So you, you have some link to them. They know you and they bring in their guys. Uh, for the head coaching job, generally what general managers do is kind of take a look at who's out there in the junior level, the college level, the American Hockey League level, and then they phone you and ask you to uh, to come in for an interview. So over the years, that uh, I think I've had th- three or four head coaching interviews prior to that. Uh, but going down, meeting with Jim, and um, getting the Pittsburgh job was just like a dream come true. You're, you're coaching in Pittsburgh, you're coaching uh, with the Mario Lemieux own team, um, Sidney Crosby, Malkin, Latang, Flurry, a uh, great host of players. And it was, it was a phenomenal opportunity uh, for me to go in there and do that. Uh, it only lasted a year and a half. I wish it had lasted longer, but that's what happens sometimes as a head coach in the NHL. Uh, as I said earlier, when I went to Vancouver, I was hoping to stay for a few years and that ended up to be seven and Pittsburgh it was shorter, but I enjoyed the experience. And I, I think that as I look back, are there a couple things you would change or adjust uh, for sure? Because you're always critical of how you do things as a coach. Every year I look back and, and want to try and improve on what we've done the previous year. But... I still felt that we were moving in the right direction. The first year I was there, at Christmas, I missed coaching in the All-Star game by two points. Uh, so our team was at the top, and we had had the mumps at Christmas. We had a lot of things happen to us that year. Holy Matta had uh, cancer. Uh, we lost him, a good young defenseman, early in the year. Uh, but we had had a good season, and then we got injuries heading into the playoffs against New York.
0: Yeah, so many different things have to go right at the NHL level to, um, you know, some teams are rolling and it's just injuries and things like that that are out of your control. But um, regardless of, of what happened in the standings, it's it's great to hear that you were able to go in there and, and work with those outstanding players and be able to say that, you know, you were a head coach at the NHL level and, um, you know, were successful during your time as well. So, Uh, Moving into some listener questions now, uh, this one being about Portland. When assessing players to acquire or simply building your team out of camp, you know, as a GM and a coach, uh, what do you look for in an ideal player from a management scouts point of view, as well as, you know, from a more uh, personable, say, coaching point of view?
1: Yeah, so here's the instruction we give our scouts. So we evaluate four areas. And that's how we've decided from day one in Portland, we evaluate our players on four things. So skating, skill, compete, and intelligence. And then I give the scout the fifth area, which we call want. And that's, it could be, most of the time it's intangibles. A scout meets a player, watches a player, and says, I'd love to have this, this kid as part of our program. So you rate each of those areas out of five. So skating, skill, compete, intelligence, and then want out of five. And we get a score. And that's how we select our players. So we get a score and we evaluate uh, throughout the year 14, 15-year-old players. And then we select them in in the 15-year-old draft. And then we have a year to recruit them or make a decision if we want to sign them. And we haven't changed that since day one. I've told our scouts also never talk about size because these are young kids. We never know how big they're going to be. And what happens in Bantam hockey a lot of times is people get enamored by size. A big kid, maybe developed early, he just overpowers everybody. So when we have our scouts meeting, they're not allowed to talk about size. So they don't, they don't say, oh, this guy's a tiny little guy and he, he's probably never going to be able to play junior or this guy's a big, strong guy, and he does this. I don't want to know about size. I want to know about those other things. That's all I want to know about. And, and the deciding factor for me is intelligence. How smart is the player? To play our system, to play our structure, and for those people who don't know how we play important, the best way to describe it is a little bit like Toronto, a little bit like Tampa Bay, if you're taking two teams that, that play a similar style to ours. Maybe a little bit like uh, Colorado now, how Colorado plays a game. So that's how we play. We play a very up-tempo style. We play a dynamic style. We have our defense very engaged in the attack. So our defensemen have to be mobile. They have to be smart. They have to be able to make plays. Everybody on our roster has to be able to make good decisions and make plays. Can you develop intelligence? I think you can, and we work on it. But if I go to a Bantam game, I can pick up the smart players in about one period of hockey just by watching the game and taking a look at what they do within the game.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to hear those different attributes. And intelligence is obviously one that everybody wants, um, you know, the coachability, things like that. I uh, really play, uh, pay dividends moving forward. And um, it's interesting to hear the, the aspect that you don't talk about size, especially in a Bantam draft. Um, there is that, you know, very steep curve of development that, you don't know in a year's time someone can grow five inches and, and put on 40 pounds. You know, that's kind of the way things are. And um, it's definitely a, another at, thing that you have to deal with in that draft class. So, you know, I think
1: the thing forward. for me that that is key when my size factor is compete. So how hard does that player compete? And, and I don't care if he's six foot four or he's five foot 10 if he's a very competitive player, nobody wants a six foot four player that doesn't compete. And if your five foot 10 player competes harder than a six foot four player, and he's quicker and he's smarter, that's the guy you want. So the compete factor is our size factor in Portland. Sure, it's nice and people will say, well, you look at Dallas right now, big heavier team and, and yeah, it's, it, we'd love to have uh, all our forwards be the size of Jamie Benn and the skill of Jamie Ben, the hands, but you can't find those players all the time. That's really difficult. And, but certainly we'd like to have that, but we don't talk about it at the band level because you're not going to be able to predict. Even if you look at his parents, you're not gonna be able to predict. You might guess, but you're not gonna be able to predict what, how big the player's gonna be.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, moving into some more philosophy and things like that, uh, you've had so much experience at the NHL and international level. Uh, how has that changed your approach to coaching you know in the junior level uh, outside of that uh, age group with men
1: and that's a common question for somebody like myself who's had experience at different levels uh younger coaches often ask me well when you coach nhl players do you change your coaching style and the answer to that simply has always been no i've never changed wherever i was my thing with coaching is whether i'm assistant coach or a head coach I have to find a way to help the player perform. My job is to help the player get better and perform well. So that's what I look for. And that's what I bring to the player. I take a look at his game and it may be video instruction. It may be uh, a style of play. It may be skill drills on the ice after practice or before practice to help that player out. But I constantly search for ways to make that player get closer to their potential and allow that player to get closer to the potential and push that player to get closer to their potential. So sometimes it's pushing, prodding, working with the player, but it it doesn't matter where you are at the university of Brunswick or with the Olympic team. If you can help a player get better, he's all ears. He's going to listen.
0: Yeah, it really is the fundamental aspect of coaching. And uh, I figured that would be somewhere along the lines of the answer, but uh, was interesting here, perspective nonetheless. Uh, you know, you've had a n- number of opportunities to interview. Uh, we talked about the positions that you've held and, and some of the positions you've interviewed for. Uh, in those situations for people who haven't experienced it, what kind of things can you do to prepare? And what kind of thing, even, you know, coming from a management perspective, uh, do you look for a coach to talk about, whether it be tactics, like ideas, what kind of things uh, happen in those interview process?
1: Well, I think with interviews, and we do some things with our players now, which I think is really important, is is we do a public speaking class. And, and just to give our players the opportunity to stand in front of groups, to talk to people and get their point across. Um, I'm, I've always enjoyed presentations. I've always enjoyed giving back to the game. And so when I do an interview with a reporter, I try and be real. I think people will often say, you try and be real when you're talking. You have to be careful when you're an NHL coach, what you say, because nowadays everything can go uh, with social media all over and it can be taken out of context. So you have to be a little guarded in what you say as an NHL coach, but in other avenues, I've been very open, always very open, very honest. I want to give back to the game. I want to help the game. So in any interviews like this, if you, you contacted me, we didn't know each other. And uh, I have time now, and we're not playing, so if there's an opportunity like that, then I'll jump at the, the chance to uh, talk with you, Ryan, and then maybe give back the game and help some people out a little bit. But in, in interviews, in media interviews, I think, you know, I I watch Pete Carroll, I knew Pete Carroll when he was in LA, he was coaching at USC, and I watch him with the Seahawks, Seahawks and, and take a look at his interviews at the end of games. He's, you come away and you say, geez, he's really honest, he's really sincere, he's he's really to the point, um, he's not afraid to to make his point. But that's the impression you have and I think that that's a, a really good example. Other people on the East Coast may maybe say, you should be like Belichick, uh, very guarded, uh, very short. Um, maybe in the hot media markets, Uh, You need to be like that. I know Mark Crawford in Vancouver, and I talk to Travis a lot in Vancouver now. You just have to be a little bit cautious sometimes in those hot media markets that what you say, you better think about before you say it and just be careful. So sometimes the Scotty Bowman philosophy was have your answers prepared before you get the questions. And even if you don't get that question, give the answer. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, that, that's a good uh, a good approach, and uh, we see that at the highest level a lot. But, uh, again, everybody has their own style, and and everybody uh, has a different approach to the interview process and, and dealing with media and things like that. But uh, very appreciative of people like you that will come on and, and talk to me and things like this on the podcast and just share your stories. So, you know, after working with elite players like and Crosby, Sedin Twins, the Olympic team, Wayne Gretzky, you know, the list just goes on and on. Uh, what on-ice and off-ice attributes separate them from some of the other top players in the world?
1: Well, if I go back to Pittsburgh and the Maritime uh, people with, with Sidney Crosby, what makes those guys special is they are driven, focused athletes. That's what makes them special. Anybody who gets to that, the elite NHL level, the Hall of Fame level that those Olympic players were, they are very driven, very focused players. And um, I take a look at Crosby when I was in Pittsburgh. He would be on the ice first a lot of days. He would ask Rick, Rick Tockett to go out early and work on his game. Uh, he's one of the hardest working guys at practice. He wants power play, penalty kill, full out against each other. He, he, is, he is a very structured, focused, driven individual. That's why they get to where they are. You take a look at the Michael Jordan documentary. I thought that was outstanding, uh, The Last Dance, and um, I really enjoyed it because that's what those elite athletes are. They're driven, they're focused, they want to win, and, and they're business. And, and, and it, they know how to get better. And if they have a rough year, they've had a rough week, they get down to working, uh, they get down to focusing on their game, and, and then they tend to keep their game at a high level for a long period of time. In Pittsburgh, it was interesting because personalities of the, some of those elite players are much different. So you took a, take a look at Marc-Andre Fleury, who's a great goaltender. His personality, he was able to keep it very loose in the dressing room, very loose on the ice. He would stay out a long time in practice. He would take the last shot from anybody on the team. He was the type of guy that, that kept the whole team connected together. Uh, when, he, when he was with Pittsburgh. And then you saw the same thing in Vegas, early in Vegas when, when he was there. So there's every athlete has a different personality and a different impact on the group. And, but all those players, they, they work. And people think it just comes natural. It doesn't come natural. They work. Crosby worked. And, and Flurry worked. And, and you can see the impact on their game because of that.
0: For sure. And, and we always see... Uh, at glimpses behind the scenes uh, of the work ethic and things like that but it's interesting to hear from somebody who has been in those closed rooms and and seen those extra mo- uh, miles and extra effort being put in uh, a lot of these players are high draft picks and you know recently you've been able to work with a pretty good prospect in Seth Jarvis um, a listener wants to know what kind of ceiling do you see from him and what kind of attributes or skills do you see uh, maybe if he continues to work on could bring him to new levels?
1: Yeah, for those people that don't know Seth, Seth Jarvis, he's a 17-year-old player with us uh, from Winnipeg. He came in at 16 years of age, uh, had a big impact on our team, and then led our team this year. As a young player, 17-year-old, you don't often see that they lead a WHL team in scoring. Seth is uh, – and I've had a, a lot of those questions over the summer from NHL teams. Yeah, uh, the draft is October 6th. It's going to be interesting to see where he goes in the draft. He's definitely going to be a first-round pick. Uh, What type of ceiling do I see in him? He plays the game fast. He's very competitive. Um, His hands and his feet are quick. So he plays the game the way it needs to be played these days. And, again, like I told you, when he was a Bantam, he was not very big. Not very big at all. But he was competitive, and he was skilled, and he was smart. And that's why we picked him. Um, and, and he chose to come to, to Portland. He was thinking about going to college. He chose to come to Portland um, because he was a, really ahead of the game, in, in his, especially in Winnipeg. And, and now I, I see him as a top-two-line NHL player for sure, and I see him being a versatile player. So this year we asked him to kill penalties because I believe all our players, if they're going to go to the NHL level, they have to be versatile so the coach can use them in different situations. We asked him to kill penalties. And he became, Don Hay ran our penalty kill and he became one of our top penalty coaches by the end of the year. So I just think he is so versatile. He's going to play for a long time, but I, I really believe he'll be a top two-line guy for sure.
0: Yeah, it's great to hear that versatility. And I think it goes to show the player's mindset when they're willing to take on those new assignments. You know, Seth could have just stuck with the the goal scoring and, and creating plays, but instead he decided to take on that responsibility as a penalty killer and I'm sure uh, when an NHL team is looking at that last-minute decision on should we keep this guy or what kind of decision do we make here uh, little things like that will pay dividends for him. You've been very open with a number of things here and many people including myself know you like to do a lot of information sharing through webinars and things like that and you've also been involved with books. Uh, what is your motivation for doing these things and uh, what do you determine or what's your process for determining what is important to to share through these outlets?
1: I'll tell you an interesting story about why I wrote my first book with Ryan Walter. So Ryan Walter, as a, as a longtime NHLer, captain, great player in the NHL, we were neighbors in Vancouver and he worked for the television station that covered our game. So he would travel with us on the plane. And one day I went back in the plane and sat with Ryan and we were talking about coaching. Uh, because he was really into giving back to the game and he was actually coaching in the area where we lived, young kids. So we, Ryan and I talked and we talked about what books we're reading. And we talked about three or four different books with great American coaches, whether it was Lombardi or Bobby Knight or, or different American coaches, basketball, football, and all of the books we talked about were American coaches. And we, we, we said to each other, well, do you know any books that have been written about scotty bowman or roger nielsen or claire drake or and we both neither of us could come up with a book and we and we looked it up and there were no books written on great canadian coaches so the inspiration for our first book was just that um and we call it simply the best insights and strategies from great coaches so we did a survey and we picked uh Canada's best coaches, a variety of people sent in names to us, and we selected those coaches. And what we did is simply in a chapter format, we interviewed them. And two of those, co- or three of those coaches have passed on, Roger Nielsen, Pat Quinn, and uh, Claire Drake. And so fortunately enough, we were able to document their thoughts on, on how they ran a team, team building, on things they, they valued um and what's important to winning we just we asked a bank of questions interviewed them probably it was about a two-hour interview and then we we narrowed it down to about 15 pages for each chapter and it, it it was although it's it's dated right now i just think it's an outstanding book and we we didn't write anything we just interviewed them and asked the right questions and picked the coaches that's all we did And and I really believe that it it brought insight into these coaches And, and the coaches that we interviewed were so open. They were, they were, they were told stories. They gave us information. They probably wouldn't share with the media normally. And the other person in there who I couldn't believe at that time that a book hadn't been written about was Scotty Bowman. Scotty Bowman should be right up there with Vince Lombardi as far as the number of books that have been written about him. At that time, there was not, no nothing documented about Scotty Bowman other than articles, nothing in a book format. And we did a chapter with Scotty. And uh, and I just think that for me as a coach, trying to become a coach, I learned a lot by doing those interviews. And I was so thankful that the coaches were as open as they were uh, in that book. So if people have a chance to dig it up someplace. It this the stories, or the book is dated, but but the concepts and what's covered in the book is definitely not.
0: Yeah, I love uh, reading things like that, and uh, you learn a lot from interviews. I'm the first to say this is probably my number one learning resources podcast and talking with different people like yourself, but uh, I recommend others look at that book, and it's definitely one I'll be digging for and and hoping that I can, you know, catch a glimpse of of some of the mindsets of, of those great hockey minds, so uh, as a reflection piece here, looking back on your career to date, uh, I know you've talked about a few different people, but maybe you just mentioned some of your key mentors, and then what are the main lessons that you learned uh, through interactions with those people and your experiences overall?
1: Well, I've had several along the way. Uh, my high school coach at Prince Andrew High School in Dartmouth, uh, Don Bald, uh, was the first coach I ever played for that was a real teacher. He really taught the game and he would do uh, drills on the ice that were way ahead of its time. And he influenced me that way. And then uh, Andy Murray at Brandon university, uh, playing for Andy there, uh, being the captain of the team, kind of working in the leadership group with Andy. He also really influenced me. And then we've coached together on Olympic teams, world championship teams, stayed friends uh, for a long time. And then in Alberta, of a young coach trying to find my way, Claire Drake was a huge influence. Uh, He influenced a lot of great coaches, people in Canada, some people know him, some don't. Uh, He had a brief stint at the NHL level. And I remember asking him, you know, why he came back to university after only one year in the NHL. And he just said that he enjoyed teaching, he really enjoyed the teaching aspect of the university system. And he was a big influence on so many coaches in Canada coming up through And then Mark Crawford, who I work with at the NHL level first. So those are the people that really impacted me. And I would encourage two things for young coaches. One is network for sure, because as I've told my story, it seems like people I've met have kind of led into positions that I've been able to obtain. And the second thing is uh, uh, search out mentors, search out people that can influence how you develop and people that you, you, like the way they do things, and then you can ask them, talk to them, and find out more about how they do things so that it can help you kind of script who
0: you are as a coach and a person. Great points and great lessons and a number of key mentors who uh, many people are very familiar with. So as a final question, and I ask this to everybody, if you could go back to yourself, maybe when you were playing in high school or or someone who's looking to just start off in the, in the working world, what is one final piece of advice that you would give them in hopes that they'd become a, a head coach or a general manager or, you know, in a position like you're in today?
1: Always try and learn. I think the first thing is have that learning mindset. So no matter how well you've done or where you're at, try and search out opportunities to get better, better as a person, better if you want to coach, better as a coach. Every year I enjoy trying to, upgrade my skill set in whatever it is i read a lot i read a lot of books on culture i read a lot of books on coaching uh professional development books so i think that's really important and then the second thing is don't be afraid to network and it's some people i meet people in the arena they'll come up and they'll say oh i don't want to take your time i just want to say hi they introduce themselves i appreciate that i I think it's great people come up and and uh, all of a sudden they say hey mike uh this is my name, I'd like to be a scout in Western Hockey League. I may be able to give them a piece of advice, or maybe two years from now, I'll remember that person, and we're looking for a scout in that area, and I'll reach out to that person. So don't be afraid to network, don't be afraid to introduce yourself to, uh, to people along the way, um, because you're not bothering them when you do that. And, um, and I think that that's how you, that's how you, you can network and get opportunities
0: yeah a great piece of advice and something that everybody whether it's hockey or life in general look to network and create those connections and um you know who knows where life will take you so mike i just want to thank you uh, for taking some time today i know your schedule is very busy and like you said we never knew each other before this but uh, i appreciate you taking some time nonetheless and i wish you all the best moving forward thanks Ryan. all right take care I'd like to once again thank Mike for coming on the podcast and giving us the breakdown of his career and speaking to the experiences, especially those involving elite players in the game. Like others before him, he brought a different perspective to the podcast, so for that I'd also like to thank him. If you would like to get in touch with Mike to discuss his experiences, I encourage you reach out to him directly or contact Hockey Minds Podcast at Outlook.com and I can help make that connection for you. Before closing today, I also wanted to give a shout out to My Hockey Resource, created by former guest Ian Beckenstein. My Hockey Resource is a place for hockey minds to connect, share ideas, and learn new things in all areas of hockey operations. To connect with others on the platform and to learn more information, follow at hockey underscore resource on Twitter and Instagram. Next on the podcast, I'll be joined by Idris Bumush, NHL cap and contract consultant. Capology is not an area everyone immediately thinks of when looking at hockey operations, but it is quickly becoming one of the more important aspects at the NHL level. Like today's interview, this one was unique, and it created a great conversation, so be sure to listen into that one on Wednesday. As always, thank you to everyone for supporting the podcast, and for those of you who are just joining us for the first time, let us know what you thought of this episode and what you would like to see on the podcast moving forward. As always, stay safe and all the best.